Well, at some point when you're talking about the nature of the Christian life, you have to circle back around to the sovereignty of God. And when you do, you find out that there is an entire order in which God has really worked out our salvation, of course. Our salvation has been fully accomplished and fully applied through the work of Jesus Christ. But there's an order, there's a logical order to the doctrine of salvation, or what we call soteriology. And when it comes to issues like what we're going to talk about today on Christ and Kingdom, the effectual calling of God, and of course, connected to that would be the idea of election and predestination and those kinds of things. You know, these can be very controversial subjects for a lot of people, and so we hope to really kind of untangle some of these issues. But again, we're dealing with the book by Sinclair Ferguson, The Christian Life, and we're on chapter four. This chapter is entitled Called by God, and I think it is a tremendous chapter. I thought it was very edifying, and I think it's very important for Christians, especially young Christians, to grasp the the, uh, concept that they have been called by God in the manner in which Sinclair Ferguson lays out here in his book. And so just want to invite uh, the guys to the program today, Mike Tiemann, who's a pastor in uh, Anaheim Hills at The Rock, and also Kevin Moore, who pastors out here in Sherman, Texas. It's good to be with you guys again. Guys, how are you guys doing? And what did you think of this chapter? Hey, Emilio, doing doing great. Good to be back with you, Kevin, also. Uh, this chapter is, is just phenomenal. It's precious. It's chock full of good and life-giving theology. Agree. I mean, when you think about, uh, well, first, it's good to be with you guys again here. Uh, but uh, it's, a, yeah, it's just packed with just such rich theology. And when you talk about the call of God, the effectual call that God has raised us from the dead and imparted new spiritual life to us, um, what a joy it is to read that. And I love how just as we're going through this book, we're, we are seeing the Ordo Salidas too. We're seeing just, and we'll talk a little bit about that tonight too, is it from the general call to the effectual call? And I love how just uh, Ferguson unpacks that in this chapter as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he begins a chapter by talking about how different theologians and different people and even different sections of scripture, how they handle the uh, the role that the call of God plays, whether we're thinking about theologians like John Calvin and where he placed the idea of this, of of things like divine calling, election, predestination, and also even in Scripture how that at times those things are formulated in different orders. And I don't think that's the most important part. I think the most important part is just that we understand when we're talking about uh, the call of God, what exactly are we talking about? And Sinclair Ferguson points out that this begins to kind of lead down the path of a controversial sort of, um, you know, part of theology. Like, for most folks, when they encounter the sovereignty of God, which the calling of God certainly involves that, it can be, it can be challenging for people, philosophically challenging, theologically challenging. It can be challenging for them to grasp something so deep and immense and profound as subjects like predestination, and also just even this idea as we're going to get into the effectual calling of God, that not everybody hears the effectual calling of God. And so um, I want to just talk a little bit about kind of the role of predestination, the sovereignty of God. You know, as as pastors, obviously, this is a doctrine that we cannot avoid. Um, I've actually been in a church where a pastor uh, completely avoided um, uh, an entire section out of Romans 9, that dealt with the sovereignty of God and just completely skipped over an entire portion there of Scripture so just so he wouldn't have to tackle the sovereignty of God. And I thought, wow, you know, that's a shame because as a young Christian, all I wanted to know was, what does this mean? What What, what is Scripture teaching right here? And so, guys, maybe, Kevin, you can start off just like, how do you walk people through the controversy of this as you encounter a, 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 a you know a, a person who is maybe young in the Lord, uh, or maybe even older in the Lord, but just not really exposed to Reformed theology, predestination, election, how do you handle someone like that, and what do you do? What's your approach there? 
You know, I mean, I think uh, for so many people, and I think we can all testify too, to the fact that this is something that we've worked through. And so just being gracious, um, um, coming alongside of them, um, you know, it's it's so easy just now that on the other side and looking at that and embracing the five points and look what the Bible says, isn't it clear? But to hear people's hear people say, "Well, I thought I chose Christ, wasn't I? Didn't I put my faith in Christ?" And to walk them through that and say, "Yes, you were raised from the dead. The call came out. The Holy Spirit raised you from the dead. You were born of the." spirit and he did this through the word of God and God imparted new spiritual life to you as Ephesians 2 you were dead in your trespasses and sins and so I think for me personally just knowing how I it took me probably about a year year and a half to really work through this and the objections and just saying well I don't get that and then the objection of like well if God chose me uh, that means he didn't choose somebody else and, and, and wrestling through all that. And so when I do encounter somebody who is, um, who is working through that, um, I try and be as, again, first and foremost, point them to the word of God, but also come alongside of them and answer any questions that they do have and just say, Hey, as a pastor, I'm here to help you. I'm here to disciple you. And I, what I want to do is I want to show you clearly what the word of God says, and I want to come alongside you and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And then, you know, Mike, maybe unpack for us how you have tackled this in the past and maybe what scriptures, you know, you use and, you know, how do you approach scripture? Because you can't compromise what the word of God says, but at the same time, you don't want to, you don't want to necessarily stumble people in their mind and their theology and I think there's something to be said about that, right? We've all heard of the cage stage Calvinist that doesn't care what anybody <laughs> thinks or believes or where they're at. But really, as you get older in the Lord, hopefully you get a bit more seasoned, a bit more, uh, a, a bit more wise, a bit more prudent, a bit more gracious in the way that you do things, right? How can we have that, that balance, Mike, and what kind of has been your experience and what you've done? Yeah, great question. I love what Kevin said. I think he, I think he said it so perfectly, and and um, not really much to to add to that. But as as pastors, we need to give people space and room to grow. Right this this process of sanctification is is a process. It's not an overnight thing, and and that even takes place in our mind and our theology. And when we start talking about high things of God. They come in direct conflict with our pride and our our, our presuppositions of, of who I am and, and what I have the ability to do, and they haven't worked out that theology. They haven't wrestled uh, with it to, to that extent, and, and giving people just room to breathe without going just full-blown cage stage on them. Uh, is is gracious and just be patient with them. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, right? Like just just we we don't need to beat them. At the same time, we don't shy away <clears throat> from teaching the the clear passage uh, of scripture that's in in front of us. And when it's dealing with with predestination, when it's dealing with these these so-called controversial issues, uh, we 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 bring them with with grace and clarity um, and allow people to, to work through them. Now I have a, there's a, there's a young man that I've been talking to that is very opposed to uh, everything, you know, we're going to talk about tonight and um, he's wrestling through it. And he, he said the other day that he denies doctrine of providence. And I thought, Whoa, there's a case like that that is just, okay, danger. Because now you're starting to get into the realm of who God is and your understanding of that. And and there's some real real danger there. My, my pastoral heart and care for my friend, um, there's, there's real concern there. So not coming alongside him, you know, in, in my heart, I want to just hit him in the face with my Bible, you know, but being very patient and very loving coming under him. Um, to, to hopefully lift him up Amen. to maturity. Amen. Yeah. 
Okay, so um, let's just talk about this, uh, this doctrine here uh, that we're focusing on, which is the call of God. And when we're thinking about the calling of God, let me just kind of define for us what we're talking about. We're talking about that God calls out not in the sense of something even Sinclair Ferguson is going to actually tackle is the idea that God sometimes calls you to a vocation and to those kinds of things. But we're talking more specifically here about salvation, that there is a salvific calling of God that God issues forth, and that that calling, in a sense, is kind of uh, it's two-dimensional, or there's two levels, or there are two aspects to this call. There is what theologians call the general call or the universal call of God, and then there is the effectual call or the specific call, the redemptive call, or the, the, um, the call unto salvation. And that, of course, only goes out to those and, and that would, of course, repent and respond and believe, but taken to the deepest level of theology, we understand that the effectual calling of God is actually going to be received and embraced by those whom God has appointed unto eternal life, those whom God has chosen in, in, by, by virtue of his divine decree election and predestination. Uh, We talked at some point in our podcast, we talked about Romans 8 already, and we talked about the order of salvation there, that God definitely has that order laid out in terms of predestination and foreknowledge, and those who were, uh, of course, those who were predestined and those who were foreknown or foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image, they were the ones who were called and so if you're predestined, you're called, justified, and glorified. That is Paul's order. And so when we're talking about this, this sovereign calling of God, uh, you know, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, a two-level a two, uh, calling. There's a universal call of the gospel. It goes out to every sinner, every person. And I, a lot of times I like to focus on evangelism specifically that's like public because you have an open-air preaching situation, or you're doing evangelism outside, everyone's hearing the voice of the preacher, everybody's hearing the gospel that's going out, but it's remarkable that there are only some, few of any, that will actually hear that call, and that God, God is going to powerfully call them unto himself in salvation. And so that's that really is what this calling is all about. And then Maybe in addition to that, just to, to prime the pump a little bit, you know, Sinclair Ferguson is going to point out, which I think was so important, that it's not just about being called and understanding that, but what is the calling for ultimately? And the calling is a calling unto salvation, yes, but it's a calling unto a life of sanctification, and ultimately it's a calling unto heaven. So I thought, I think that's just important for us to kind of lay out as we kind of proceed into this discussion deeper. But when it comes to, you know, this book, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I just think he did a masterful job kind of weaving all these themes together. But he begins with two very important passages, and I'd like for you guys uh, to kind of read them for us, and then we can kind of interact, or you guys can explain them for a bit, and we can interact with them. The first one is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The other one is John 10, verses 2 to 5. And so, Mike, if you want to quickly read that text for us and then kind of elaborate there on its meaning. Yeah, for sure. First Peter 2, <clears throat> 9 says, And you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you could break this this passage up into four or five different different sermons. This is rich with Old Testament imagery going back to to Israel, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Right? That that's that's Old Testament imagery as as people as sorry, as Peter is writing this. 
But the purpose that Sinclair is really hitting on here is this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, right? That's referring to God who called you out of, out of what? Out of darkness. He already, he already said uh, back, what was it, in the previous uh, chapter, um, that uh, uh, he he called you from ignorance in chapter one verse verse fourteen. Uh, he called you from ignorance. Here he's calling you from from the the power of darkness into into his marvelous light. He goes on, and once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right. This is this is that effectual call of God that took us out of darkness, out of ignorance, out of our 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 sin, right? Out of from an unsaved place to a regenerated place. And this places that that whole thing upon God's doing God's calling uh, that, that took place uh, on, on our behalf. This is that effectual call of God that now brings us into the reality of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, his own possession. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'll read. Uh, no, absolutely. Oh, uh, go ahead, Kevin. You can add whatever he, comments you'd like to. Yeah, that, I was going to read too from John ten, just kind of piggybacking off what uh, what Mike said in John chapter ten, verses two through five. He says this: "But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has." When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And you're talking about the effectual call that, again, the sheep hear his voice. And um, again, God is the one that calls us from darkness to light, from death to life. And, and you know, Amelia, as you're talking about open air preaching, as, as you're proclaiming the general call, as you're proclaiming the gospel, why do some people respond and why do some people not respond? It's not because somebody is smarter or wiser or they can figure something out. No, it's the effectual call that goes out and God raises them from the dead. You know, I love what Burkhoff says in his, his systematic, even piggybacking off what you had said too, um, just in defining it. He says the uh, the effectual call, it's that eternal act of God whereby in his sovereign good pleasure and an account of no foreseen merit in them chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and of eternal salvation. And, you know, when you think about the effectual call and just as we've talked about in previous ep- episodes is how it just destroys the pride of man. You know, it makes me think of it. I have a quote here from A.W. Pink, and it's in his book on the sovereignty of God. And he says this, he says, the truth of God's sovereignty removes every ground for human boasting and instills the spirit of humility instead. It declares that salvation is of the Lord, of the Lord in its origination, in its operation, in its consummation. And all this is most humbling to the heart of man who wants to contribute something to the price of his redemption and to do that which will afford ground for boasting and self-satisfaction. And again, um, you know, we see that Christ is the one. Why do people respond? It's because of the effectual call that goes forth. Mm. And I know even Sinclair talks about just even later on about the prophetic power of the word of God. And um, I don't know, one of you want to handle that as, as well, Emilio? Well, I'd like to for all of us even to talk about this point because... Um, you know, we've all handled the word, we've all preached, we've all taught the word of God, and we can all relate to this idea that you may have designed a sermon, a message, a lesson in in Sunday school or whatever, um, and what you put down in your notes, what you studied for, and what people heard and what people received sometimes are two different things. It's really fascinating to watch this in real time, so to speak, because people have come up to me numerous times, I know, and have shared with me how God used this message in a specific area of their life, and I had no clue whatsoever. I had, maybe a better way to put it, I had no uh, 
I had no agenda whatsoever to talk about that issue in these people's lives, and yet God's Word speaks like this. And so when God's calling goes out, it's amazing. And it's, I think it's interesting that Sinclair Ferguson actually tackles this aspect of the call of God, uh, kind of branching out to a broader idea and the prophetic kind of uh, dynamic of the Word of God. He says on page 27, if I can just quote this for us, he says, preachers are occasionally accused of exposing the lives of their hearers when they have known nothing about the person who has been so disturbed. The sharp personal edge of God's word has touched them. Slowly it dawns as the speaker emerges from the voice of the messenger that the voice we heard was the voice of the shepherd. He has been calling us by name, and now we recognize his accent as he draws us into his flock and we become his lambs. I thought that was really brilliant, and it just reminds us that in the call, as we are issuing forth the calling of God, as we are just basically preaching the word of God and the gospel, we have supreme confidence that God is going to use his word powerfully and effectively. And if I mean, obviously, in the realm of salvation, yes, of course, in the realm of drawing people unto salvation, absolutely. But also, practically speaking, God is always doing more than one thing at one time, <laughs> through his word. And it's a lot, oftentimes way more than anything we could have even fathomed. And so um, uh, I, I just, you know, thought that was a really rich point uh, in this chapter. Uh, I don't know if you guys, Mike, if you wanted to add something to that, go ahead. Yeah, Amelia, I have that whole section you just read there, just underlined and starred. It, it's such a profound truth, and as pastors, it, it, it gave me so much comfort. Right, I, I work with a bunch of teenagers, and am teaching through say the, I'm teaching through the Gospel of John right now, and my heart is is constantly burdened. I'm constantly preaching this truth to myself that my job is just to faithfully handle the text that's in front of me. And the Spirit's job is to take that and apply it to the hearts. And, and like you said, it, 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 he does it in different ways. I'm like, wow, I, I didn't even say, I didn't even think I said that. But the Spirit works supernaturally through the very practical means of just faithfully breaking down the text, right? Our, our hearts are are bent towards gimmicks and flair. We want to try to figure out how do we how do we create this emotional response. But that's not our that's not our job, that's not our role. Our our position as as pastors, as Christians, we're going to talk about uh the gospel presentation here later in the the podcast, but our our responsibility is just to faithfully present the word of God. That's that external that he's going to talk about. And then the Holy Spirit takes that internal and awakens dead hearts, applies it there uh, to, to the people in the audience. And that, that gives us so much freedom to not have to try to manipulate and connive and figure out ways to get people saved. That's not our job. That's that's the Holy Spirit's job, and that that gives so much freedom and peace, and allows us to sleep sleep good at night. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would always like I would add to that too is uh, anytime uh, I got up to teach, I would have to remind myself of Isaiah fifty five ten and eleven that you know God's word that that goes out, it's not going to return empty, it's not going to be void, but it's going to accomplish that which it, which He purposes and shall succeed in that which he said. And so that's, Mike, you're exactly right. Proclaim the word of God, exposit it. And it's amazing to see, as Amelia, as you just said too, just how God is doing so many different things in people's lives that you could preach a sermon and you think, okay, this is the, this is what I want them to take away from it. And they do take that away, but there's also many other things that are being applied to their life as well. And, and it's, it's always amazing to see just how God's working and his word does not return void. Yeah. And how many times do we sit there and think, man, I knocked that out of the park, right? God's gift to the ministry. That was the greatest sermon I've ever, I've ever preached. And then people are like, yeah, it was all right. And then you're just like, man, I, I blew it. I should step down. I should never go up to the pulpit again. That was an absolute train wreck. And then people are just, just weeping, right? Because it's, it's not of us, 
right? It's a, it's God's going to do, and he's going to use the foolish things of the world. Yeah, I would even say this too, is I know like even on page 27, you know, he goes in from the call of God into the Old Testament background of the call of God. And so, that, I mean, that was you know, on pages 27 and 28 as well there too. And so I like the transition of just going from the effectual call and then now we giving the Old Testament background to that. And so um, is it one you want to kind of talk a little bit more about that as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is a section that uh, I wanted to tackle because, uh, you know, it's so important to always have a unified revelation of God, right? Uh, when you see uh, that, that the Word of God uses you know, uh, the Old Testament background, or the New Testament, uses the Old Testament in in this way, that everything in the New Testament that we see crystallized, brought into absolute fruition and light, to bringing it into its absolute mature, concrete revelation, it's always important that that revelation did not begin in the New Testament. It did not start in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It began in the Old Testament. It always does. And so all of our all of our soteriological images, all of our terms, all of our themes. Uh, earlier, Mike, you quoted First Peter, right? And there in First Peter chapter two, that entire section is a massive biblical theological section, meaning biblical theology, meaning the storyline of the Bible, the organic unity of the Bible. And so it's no different with the call of God. The call of God, we see the call of God in 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 many. Uh, narratives in Scripture, whether it's the call of Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees, God singled him out sovereignly uh, out of all the pagan world. He called one man and began a nation through him. And then Israel, of course, they were called by God uh, to be his people. He singled them out and he set his love upon them. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, of course, he put his love upon them uh, for no other reason other than his good pleasure, just because he loved them. And it just reminds us that all the way through redemptive history, you have this sovereign initiative of God calling a people for himself, and it did not begin in the New Testament. It began from the very beginning. And um, and and Sinclair actually uh, points out also that in that Old Testament time, the prophets would often lament the fact that as the calling of God, so here you kind of get the dynamic of both, right? You get the general calling in the Old Testament and the 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 salvific, you know, calling the the effectual calling of God. Because in Isaiah chapter six, or excuse me, Isaiah sixty five, Isaiah sixty four, in Jeremiah seven, in Jeremiah thirty five, repeatedly the prophets are lamenting the fact that the people did not want to respond to the call of God. Uh, But we know that in the same books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets, we know that in that same book, there is an unmistakable theme of calling, an unmistakable theme of God choosing a people for himself as he calls out to them. It is always the remnant that responds. Amazing because um, we, uh, Mike Tiemann and I recently we went to the Shepherds Conference, and the theme of the Shepherds Conference was the remnant. And, um, and, and and you know what? So many of those messages were really good to point out that God has always had a remnant, and it's always the remnant, which essentially is coextensive with the elect, that respond to the effectual call of God. So it's, but, you know, um, we can just go so far into this Old Testament background, but I just want to point out how that it just shows us the organic continuity between old and new regarding the calling of God. And so I don't know if you guys want to add something to that Old Testament background, but um, I thought next we would talk about the general calling. (laughs) Uh, Mike, you want to say something? No? (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, Kevin, here's the deal. Uh, There's also a general call, right? Um, And that general call, how would you really describe that? I mean... I think it's important that, uh, you know, like Sinclair Ferguson on page 29 of this book, he makes this analogy between, um, you know, God's call uh, as a constant thing, right? Because it's found in creation. So in a sense, it's always like God is always speaking to man. And so you want to talk about that a little bit, the general call? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, as you said too, God is always speaking to man. I mean, you know, we got Romans chapter one, Psalm 19, Acts 17, God call, commands all men to repent. And the, if I could define the general call, it's, it's the gospel proclamation that goes out calling every man to repent and put their faith in Christ. And so as you go and you're opening air and let's say you're, you're down in the colony or, or someplace like that. And as you're proclaiming the gospel, the gospel is going forth and you're telling individuals that they need to repent and they need to repent of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that goes out to everyone. But the truth is, is that only some will respond. And that's the difference between what we say, the effectual call and the general call. Yeah, amen. No, that's that's really good. Um, now, l- l- want to just kind of point something out here at the very top of page, uh, or excuse me, at the bottom of page twenty nine and into page thirty, um, as you know, Sinclair is going to talk about this whole uh, issue of the call and the church's role in that, how we participate in a sense, how the church is involved evangelistically as we take the gospel forward and how really through evangelism and that what he calls here the duty of the church, right? Um, we, we engage in this universal call. Of course, it is only God who accomplishes the, gen- the effectual call. It is our duty to proclaim the general call to, every, to, to all. And the, you know, as we do this, we're obviously we're, we're heralding the gospel, which is the very heart and soul of the call of God. And so, Mike, maybe talk a little bit about that in terms of evangelism and important components to the gospel um, in terms of when we say we are calling men and women, what, what is this call? What does it consist of? Yeah, well, let me, let me kind of start by just quoting uh, Sinclair Ferguson here. Uh, on the bottom of page 29, it says, in addition to the general revelation of God to mankind, the word of the cross is also to be preached to all men. It is the duty, it is the duty of the Christian church in every age and place to proclaim to every person that there is provision for his need in Christ. The first disciples were to obey and to transmit the command of the master, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every every creature. And he goes on there to, to quote uh, Mark's Great Commission uh, passage there for us. And here, here's the bottom line. We're called to proclaim the gospel, right? That's, that's, it's as simple as that. It gets boiled down to, to that. Uh, our responsibility is not to save people. Our responsibility is to proclaim the message of the cross to sinful people. The the ability to save people is in the hands of God, you know, against what some other false religions would say. Um, the, the ability to save is within the hands of God. When we, when we say that Jesus saves, we put that period, Jesus is the one who does the saving, but he's chosen to use the means of the proclamation of the gospel through people, through the, the church of, of God to bring the message of the cross to a, to a lost and, and dying world. And I wanted to just kind of read Second uh, Corinthians chapter five verse verses sixteen uh, and following here to us because I think it just nails this. You know, Paul just summarizes this point perfectly. And I'm just going to start off in verse sixteen. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Praise God for that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you. So now he he turns. Now we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
right? What a, what a great display that Paul puts on there. Um, as he goes back and forth between this, this tension of this is what God is doing in Christ. And then he kind of flips that and goes, this is what we're supposed to do as he's given us this message of reconciliation that he's going to, to work through. And that's what a, what a tremendous blessing that is for us that we get this ministry of proclaiming the cross to, to everybody we come in contact with. That's, that's our responsibility. And we also have the freedom to know that when God shows up and when he calls out of, out of the masses of people, out of the masses of sheep, as John 10 kind of paints that imagery, as he calls his sheep by name, and they hear his voice because his sheep hear his voice. They respond. Those sheep look up, right? Not everybody looks up, but those sheep look up and they come out and they follow him and he leads them to green pastures. I would even add too, like, uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I would even add and ask this question too, is just Emilio, is as you're, um, I know you've done tons of open air preaching. What are the things that you go, okay, I need to clearly proclaim. And because we talk about the gospel message, but what are the things that need to be proclaimed? Because I think that's important, especially for the listeners as well. People can say, oh, I, uh, I told people that uh, Jesus died for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I told him, I told him the gospel. No, 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 no. So I, I'd love to hear what you, when you go and you open air, what are the things that you're like, I am going to, this needs to be proclaimed. Yeah. You know, there was an article written several years ago and oh boy, probably in a long time ago, Red Grace Media started. And, uh, I, I remember covering it in an old, podcast uh that probably doesn't even exist anywhere anymore not even out there in the ethernet somewhere of of the internet but i remember covering this article um from the gospel coalition that i thought was written very poorly on this exact issue you know the gospel coalition is interesting right I, i i i say that in the, with the Gospel Coalition, you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> and, and sometimes the Gospel Coalition is really good, and you get a really great article from a great person. And sometimes um, it's, it can be really bad. And in this article, you know, this, this was on evangelism, and it said that, you know, we need to be careful not to try to, uh, in a sense, check off boxes when we're talking to people and that you know, oh, we gotta, we we have to mention their sin. Oh, we we need to mention they need to repent. Oh, we gotta mention they need to put their faith in Jesus. And I'm sitting here going, well, if we don't, if okay, maybe we don't like the imagery of checking off a box, but if we don't have a self conscious understanding of what are the components of a faithful biblical gospel call, we're not also we're also I, I wanted I I remember responding to some degree. Saying we also don't just want to have a relationship with people. <laughs> We're also not there to check off the box of friendship evangelism, okay? Uh, preach the gospel if necessary, use words, that kind of thing. We, we, no way. Um, you know, I remember years ago, I had Phil Johnson speak at a conference for me, and I asked him to do the necessary components of a gospel call. Well, he got to the pulpit and preached a completely different message that had nothing to do with what I asked him to preach. It was one of the best messages I've ever heard even though he did not submit to my request to preach that message. <laughs> and, uh, and I was so grateful. I've never been so, so thankful to be so disappointed. <laughs> but, you know, because I really wanted him to articulate a little bit of what I'm going to say right now, and that is that a faithful gospel call includes the following. Louis Burkhoff has this. Uh, I think maybe Gruda might have this in his uh, systematic theology. But you must address the issue of sin. You must bring up the remedy of sin, which is the work of Christ on the cross. And you must, there must be a summons, a calling. Ironically, here we are talking about the call. There must be a call to repentance. And in addition to that call to repentance, there needs to be a promise, a setting forth a promise of reward, which is eternal life. If we don't have those basic, basic components I don't think we are being faithful to the biblical message. If you look at what Paul does in Acts chapter 17 with the Athenians, right? At the very end, after, of course, he lays down a biblical, and I would even argue, covenantal cosmology, going back to Adam, 
okay? It, it's, it's after he does that work that he says, look, times of ignorance, God is overlooked, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. And so there, there, must, be, uh, there must be a summons to repentance. And of course, who, but, who more but the Lord Jesus set forth the promise of eternal life to people, right? Repeatedly in his gospel message, repeatedly, Jesus, of course, Jesus brought the knowledge of sin, the conviction of sin. You think about the woman at the well, right? He convicted her of her immorality, but he also set in front of her where true eternal life is found. And so we have to have some, you know, those components are so important. And if you think about the cross, I mean, obviously, when you think of sin, cross, repentance, eternal life, when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, he has all of that in mind. He's not isolating just the idea of Christ was crucified, Christ was put on a cross. He has the entire panoply of what we're talking about in mind. And so I think we must have some of those basic components in operation. Uh, the effectual call is not just an invitation to go to church. What are your thoughts? Agree. Absolutely. Um, you know, just even think of, yeah, the modern evangelical message. I mean, I remember listening to, a, um, to somebody say, Jesus loves you and he's got a wonderful plan for your life. And I mean, and so someone hears that and it's like, well, I've tried sex, drugs, alcohol. I've tried it all, man. You know what? Let me give Jesus a try. And the reality is that's not the gospel message. God is holy. We've sinned against him. We deserve his wrath, his judgment. But Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was the propitiation for our sins, satisfied the holy and righteous wrath of God rose from the dead is ascended at the right hand of God and he's going to be returning in glory and power and he will judge the world in righteousness and you're either found in him your sin has either been paid for on the cross as a substitute penal substitutionary atonement or you will pay the penalty for your sin which is eternity in hell and again that's the gospel message. The gospel message, I think you're absolutely right, isn't, hey, come to church. And then who knows what church even some people are coming to go into, and who knows if they're going to hear the gospel. That's just the reality of the situation. And the gospel is not, God has this wonderful plan for your life. That is not the gospel. We have sinned against a holy God. Yeah, I think this is a yeah. such an important conversation because we live in a culture that is absolutely opposed to offending people, right? Like that is the the chief ethic. You just do not offend people, right? And and to call them sinners, to to call them to repentance is absolutely offensive. Well, let the offense reign, right? Let it let it sit heavy upon their conscience and and we're not we're not going to make friends with everybody. We're not going to make friends with our culture. In fact, they hated Jesus. They're going to they're going to hate us. They persecuted him. They're going to persecute persecute us as as well. And we need to get this distinction of the 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 definition, the 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 necessary components of the gospel right because we see so many pastors just going left and right of this issue to try not to offend people, not to, you know, get beat mm -hmm. up in the foyer after the the message because they said something that maybe offended somebody's identity. Um, this this is the culture we're living in, but we we never yield to that culture. We, we yield to Christ, right? And, and, you know, I love bringing the, the idea of the law, right? I actually taught an Old Testament history class to, to a high school group today, and we actually watched a portion of the American gospel, uh, the Christ crucified one, because it deals with this idea of the law and the gospel, right? And, and it defines what's the purpose of the law, because you could go into the era of antinomianism, or you could go into the era of legalism, and, and what is that place of, of the law, you know, to, to burn our conscience towards towards grace to let us know we stand, as Kevin said, before a holy God, fully guilty, right? Absolutely necessary. And from that black backdrop, 
right, of our total depravity, right, of our absolute need for grace, our inability to do anything that could earn our salvation, boom, we bring the gospel right on top of it. We bring Christ crucified. We bring the call to repentance. We bring the promise of of eternity. All while in the back of our mind, we're praying for the Holy Spirit to show up and to speak and to call. Yeah, amen. Amen. No, that's a good way of putting it. So real quick here, guys, we've got a couple more things to talk about. Number one, we're talking about the Trinity because um, Sinclair Ferguson, you know, he actually points out how that every single, you know, when we're thinking about the call, each member of the Godhead is involved, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, he doesn't have a section on the Son, but he actually does cover that. And I think that's just important to point out. I love this because um, I wish he would. I wish he would have used the word Trinity over and over and over and over here because the calling of God is a Trinitarian affair, right? Um, the Son has already said, as we look there in John ten, the Son is the one uh, that calls out to his sheep. He is the shepherd. He calls out to his sheep. But we also know, based on passages like John 6 and many, many others, uh, he lists a whole bunch of passages here where, um, you know, whether it's Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 9, Jude 1, uh, Jude verse 1, where the Father calls his people. But also, it is the work of the Spirit, the work uh, of the Spirit that is uh, calling us and drawing us that is the Spirit's work within us to convict us, even as Jesus said that the Spirit would come in order to convict the world of sin, and so, but also to reveal the Son to us. And, of course, the Spirit does that uh, through this remarkable, uh, effectual call. But as we think about this whole issue of the Trinitarian call, I mean, we don't have a lot of time here, but um, Mike, did you have any thoughts on the Father and his role in calling us. Yeah, I mean, he says it just perfectly. There are many verses in the New Testament which indicate that the source of our invitation to become Christians lies in the Father. And I just wanted to go back to First Peter here at the beginning of his epistle. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, right? This is his introduction. This is his salutation. So it talks about God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his, his blood. Right at the beginning of, of 1 Peter, we have a Trinitarian um, introduction to the whole epistle that, that puts this whole salvation's beginning from the Father, accomplished through the Son, brought into reality by, by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, no, that's good. What do you think, Kevin, about um, passages or texts that speak to the Spirit's role in this calling? Yeah, I think it's important um, to even emphasize, and I know uh, Ferguson didn't hit too much on it, but you know, when we look at John chapter 3, it's everyone who's born of the Spirit. That's regeneration. But I think the important thing I would add, really two points even to this section, is number one is when we do not embrace the uh, the doctrines of grace, we're actually fracturing the unity of the Trinity because what the the Father has chosen, the Son willingly goes and gives his life and the Spirit applies redemption. So imagine for a moment that the Father chooses those. The uh, the Son goes, well, I guess I got to die for some people. And the Holy Spirit's like, well, I'll just apply it to whoever um, you know chooses me. But I, I think you see the unity and the harmony of the Trinity there that again, the Father chooses, the Son willingly goes, and the Spirit applies redemption. And regeneration to those that the Father has given to the Son. And what a beautiful truth that is. And I would also say this, I mean, you know, we talk about being born of the Spirit. 
But we've been talking about the, the gospel call, the general call. And I love first Peter chapter one, verse 23, because when we think about being born of the spirit, the spirit is called the spirit of truth. Well, ask the question, what is truth? John 17, 17, your word is truth. In first Peter chapter one, verse 23, it says this, it says, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but an imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And and you think of John one eight, or excuse me, James one eighteen, that he brought brought us forth by the word of truth, and so I think it's important to realize the connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And um, again, we see so many abuses with the Spirit today, and I know we've done a previous podcast on that as well. But um, I, I would add that too: the connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. There, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's all of that is so well said. Um, you know, just to kind of bring it home, guys, because I know we're coming close to the time for us to to close, but uh, you know, Sinclair doesn't end this chapter without reminding us that the, the the whole purpose of his calling is both to make us holy and it's also uh to bring us to heaven, which I thought was just remarkable. Maybe I'll just close with uh a quote uh, where uh, at the at the at uh, kind of the middle of page thirty three, uh, second paragraph down, Sinclair Ferguson, you know, says this. He says, "We neither uh, we have neither claim nor right to God's gracious summons." What he's talking about any more than the unformed mass of darkness and chaos in the primeval time can lay claim to the voice of God to bring light and form. Uh, and to, and form order. It is the same God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so it just reminds us that from uh, grace to grace, right, from faith to faith, uh, it is all a work of God. And uh, because of his effectual calling, we are empowered, not only called by the Spirit, but filled by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to live a godly life, and the Spirit himself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Spirit is actually a deposit, a pledge. He's the down payment that God will, in fact, glorify us and take us to heaven. And so, guys, this was a really encouraging chapter on a very, very important subject. I think we hit a lot of, uh, uh, of really rich passages of Scripture that are very relevant we did a lot of Peter. I don't know if you guys noticed. We were in Peter a lot, and and uh, Peter, man, we, we we're going to have to do a whole episode just on the the Pilgrim theology of Peter because that's really what it is. Uh, but just just for folks that are listening, thank you so much for uh, tuning in again to another episode of Christ and Kingdom. Uh, just pray for the podcast. You know, sometimes technical difficulties like we had right before the show. We 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 need prayer. You know, putting on a uh, I, I'm convinced. You know that putting on a podcast like this. Well, we're going to endeavor to teach a lot of theology, reform theology, high theology, theology, even in a, a podcast like this where we're doing a lot of quote-unquote practical theology. That's really what this book is, but it's still really dense with rich theology. So, um, you know, just pray for us uh, even as we continue on with uh, this book, but also for future podcasts, make sure and share and subscribe this episode and never miss an episode as you do that. God bless you guys. Kevin, Mike, thanks so much for uh, uh, just participating once again. God bless you guys. Mm-hmm.